0: This is They Create World, Episode 25, Mattel Electronics.
1: If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there.
0: Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today is a special day. We have been doing this podcast with this episode for one whole year. Wow, that's almost hard to believe.
2: Of course, we've been technically recording for over a year because we built up a backlog of episodes before the first time we posted, which then immediately like evaporated so now we're like flying by the seat of our pants as if we didn't record like six episodes in advance or something (laughs) ridiculous like that but yeah Yeah, one year since we posted our first one
0: yeah we're actually recording this um friday august 19th 2016 for september 1st because that gives me enough of a leeway ahead of time in order to edit everything and then alex and i go back and forth as to how it should sound at the end and Off it goes into the ether, to you, the consumer. That's right.
2: Now for one full year.
0: Now for one full year. So hopefully we'll continue to see you guys for another whole year. And more years after that, we hope to expand more with this podcast over the coming year and bring some new, exciting thingamabobs.
2: Way to sell it there, Jeff. Way (laughs) to sell it.
0: This is why I'm in computers, kids, and not in marketing. <laughs> Definitely why I'm in computers and not in marketing. But anyway, I believe last time we were going to cover Mattel electronics. And when you originally brought this topic up, Alex, I was thinking Mattel doing electronics? That doesn't make sense. It's Barbie, it's dolls, it's a toy. It's stuff that is completely devoid of electronics. They might do something like with a little little electronic gizmo in with the toy, but not something that would actually be video game related.
2: Sure, and of course, the last time that they tried to do electronics and video games and whatnot was the whole Mattel Interactive debacle at the end of the 1990s, which cost the CEO of the company her job and just was not a good idea at all. So certainly today, when people think of Mattel, they don't really think electronics, but our listeners of a slightly older vintage will certainly remember the Mattel and television in that period of time when Mattel was the second most important video game company in the entire industry.
0: Which is kind of amazing to think that they went from second best and now are not even players in the field.
2: Well, of course, the crash had the big part to do with that. And we already kind of discussed what happened to Mattel in that crash period. So we don't have to go into detail on that again, but suffice it to say the crash almost spelled the end of Mattel as a company. Mm. And they didn't really get back into games in a big way again for a very long time. They did some licensing and whatnot on the NES. And in the early nineties, they actually created a company called Mattel new media. It was the brainchild of Douglas Glenn, who had been at Lucasarts he also brought in Howie Rubin, who he had worked with, who had been at Jalco USA, which had published Lucas Arts's console games on the NES. They published Maniac Mansion on the NES. And they actually came up with several interesting concepts. That's completely tangential to what we're really <laughs> talking about today. But they came up with some interesting concepts, particularly in the arcade, that they never got a chance to implement because Mattel would let them build out these concepts and then would never let them bring it to market, even when they tested well. I'd spoken to Howie Rubin uh, a couple of months ago and he filled me in on some of that. That's not really our topic today, but the point is that Mattel became so skittish about the whole video game thing after the collapse of Mattel Electronics in the 83, 84 time period that they didn't really try to get back in again until the very end of the 90s when kind of the internet was this whole buzz thing and Hasbro had gotten in. And so Mattel tried to get in with an interactive division and that also did not end well.
0: <laughs> so many companies just went belly up because of the video game crash. We could probably have our own like memorial wall to those companies.
2: Sure, and most of them are not companies that are very well-remembered or very fondly remembered today because most of them were those fly-by-night companies that we mm-hmm. discussed in our Crash episodes. But certainly Mattel was no fly-by-night company. This no. was a major player getting involved in the industry. It really goes back to Coleco.
0: Coleco Vision.
2: Well, not Coleco Vision, okay. which came out after Mattel's console, but Coleco, the company. Okay. We discussed this a little bit, I think primarily in our video game cycles episode, where we discussed the dedicated video game console market a bit. But Coleco was a toy company, but mm-hmm. they were a kind of strange toy company because they were really in swimming pools primarily, plastic swimming pools, wading pools, and, and whatnot for children. They had some other toy stuff going on. They had, they had bought a uh, tabletop sports game company, you know, making old tabletop uh, football and hockey games and whatnot, and they had some of those other products, but they really weren't a full-service toy company in the same way that a Hasbro or a Mattel or a Milton Bradley was. They were very, very much focused on the summer months. Most toy companies do their biggest business in... The fall and winter, the holiday season leading Mm -hmm. up to Christmas. Coleco was a little strange because since they were really in the pool business primarily, swimming pools, they did their best business in the spring and summer when people were buying a new pool to stick out in the yard for the kids. So Arnold Greenberg really wanted something that could sell in the holiday season in a way that their pools obviously did not. And and this is why Coleco was the first toy company to get involved in the slowly kind of developing video game industry. We talked a little bit about this first generation of dedicated consoles. I won't go into detail here, but it was basically just Magnavox, which had originated the home video game back in the early 70s. That's a television slash consumer electronics company. It was Atari which was an arcade video game company coming into the home, and it was a couple of other small, strange little startup companies that were more electronics-focused that were trying to come in in the wake of Magnavox and Atari. The toy companies at this point weren't getting involved, even after the 1975 Christmas season, which was really the first time that dedicated consoles had had any kind of success. But Coleco was uniquely positioned to want to get involved in that because they didn't have the good holiday business. So in 1976, Coleco releases the Telstar based on that General Instruments Pong on a chip. Mm -hmm. So all they had to do was basically develop the controllers, develop the casing, wire everything in, develop the marketing, wire it all into this pre-existing chip that General Instruments created, which we talked about in our uh, Console Cycles episode. So Coleco gets in in 1976, and they sell about a million units of their Telstar. I'm not sure if it's just the basic Telstar unit. They also released a couple more before the end of the year, so that's probably total sales of all the different models. Mm -hmm. But still a million systems in 76, which was the first year that dedicated consoles got really big, because they were popular in 75, but the production runs were limited. So you were only looking at 350,000, 400,000 units. Now we're into this 3 million unit situation where Coleco all on its own sells about a million of those. And this is what causes the toy industry to take notice.
0: Well, If you got 3 million in sales overall, that's going to make a lot of people notice. This is a big business.
2: And so both Milton Bradley and Mattel at this point start looking into creating their own systems for launch in uh, 77 or 78, somewhere around there, probably 78, Milton Bradley ends up not going through with it. Now, several years later, they end up releasing a console called the Vectrex. They actually got that through a company owned by a guy named Ed Krakauer, who is going to be very important to our Mattel story here. But in this time period, when they, the system that they were looking at producing, they did some R&D work and they decided it was too expensive. It wasn't something for them. Mm-hmm. But Mattel stuck with it, and I'm sure part of the reason for that is that this was not exactly Mattel's finest hour. Mattel is a company that goes back to the 1940s. It was founded by Ruth and Elliot Handler and a fellow named Harold Matson. Harold Matson, M-A-T, Elliot Handler, E-L.
0: Mattel.
2: That's where the name Mattel actually comes from. Huh. And they started out by doing kind of various knick-knack manufacturing and actually doing picture frames as well. Picture frames at that time would be leather picture frames. They started with the leftover leather scraps from the picture frames making dollhouse furniture.
0: That would make sense. and Because so, you have these really small scraps and mm-hmm. you want something that can hold up to abuse. Leather holds up to abuse. What else are you going to do with these small pieces of scrap?
2: Exactly. And so that was kind of their first move into the toy business. And very quickly, the handlers bought out Harold Matson. Harold Matson was not involved in Mattel, the toy company. This was really the handlers. Uh, and it was actually Ruth Handler that was the real marketing and business genius of the two. Her husband basically just did R&D on some of the products. I mean, obviously, this is very unusual. We're talking early 1950s now. To Basically, I don't think Ruth Handler was officially the CEO of the company, but you essentially had a woman serving as the lead executive of a corporation. They may not have been incorporated yet, but of a company.
0: A major company. In
2: the 1950s, which is unheard of. And Mattel was really kind of the founder of the modern toy industry. I mean, there were toys before Mattel, obviously, but they were the first one to do national television advertising. Mm -hmm. They were the first ones to really do a lot of branding. I mean, you had the Barbie line of products Mm -hmm. in the 60s. You had the Hot Wheels line of products. Hasbro was creating lines at the same time. But I mean, this was really the birth of the modern toy industry. Ruth Handler was a very ambitious person. She was not content to just be in toys. She wanted to build a huge conglomerated business, because as we discussed in one of our previous episodes, the 60s and early 70s, I mean, that was really the time of the conglomerate Mm -hmm. in business. Between 1968 and 1971, they bought several, they bought five different companies. They bought a pet supply producer. They bought a magnetic tape producer bought a producer of aquariums, they got involved in films, they bought some little film company, we're not talking about any blockbusters or anything here, but they were getting involved in that, and then they bought the Ringling Brothers and, well, I think it was just the Ringling Brothers Circus then, I don't think Barnum and Bailey were part of it yet, but they bought the Ringling Brothers Circus. Wow. They bought all of these companies between 68 and 71 to really expand outside of the toy business and build this conglomerate. The problem was a lot of these subsidiaries ended up just not doing well. I mean, the pet supply stuff, the, the movie stuff, it just performed horribly. And unfortunately, at the same time, they hit a downturn in their toy business, a temporary downturn. But Hot Wheels were introduced in 1968. Mm-hmm. Before that, you know, Barbie was kind of their only super huge line. Then when they introduced Hot Wheels, they had two super huge lines. But Hot Wheels, after being very popular for a couple of years, started lagging. Obviously, Hot Wheels is still with us today. It's not like it ever went away. But, I mean, it just shot like a rocket for the first couple of years. And then it kind of leveled off and declined a little bit.
1: And this is
0: also about the same time, um, I think, with marketing and with the toy industry at this age. This is where you really have the toys market specifically for boys and toys marketed specifically for girls. And before then, it was sort of unprecedented, if I recall correctly.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm not up on the history, but you may very well be right about that.
0: I think there was a video that actually explained that, and Mm -hmm. uh, I'll try to look that up and throw that in the show notes.
2: Very cool. So, Mattel's toy business was flatlining a little bit, and their other businesses were not doing well. But they had been growing and growing and growing. They were on the stock market now, and they wanted to keep growing. And so Ruth Handler kept the company growing by falsifying the company's earnings.
0: That's not good.
2: Yeah, that's really not good. So That's what we
0: call... Is that embezzling? Or is that fraud? At the very least fraud. No, it's fraud.
2: It's securities fraud is what it is. And basically, the SEC got involved. Security is an exchange commission. And uh, in 1975, the Handlers were no longer in control of the company. Ruth Handler never went to jail, Seymour Rubinstein, who was their executive VP, none of them ever went to jail, but there was a class-action lawsuit, of course, by the shareholders against the company, and the SEC basically said, you know, handlers have got to go. So in 1975, so this is the exact time frame we're talking about with the video games, 1975, the handlers are out, Hmm. and Arthur Spear takes over the company. Arthur Spear was not a toy person. He had come in as an operations guy back in the 60s. And then in 73, he had been elevated to the presidency of the company. Mm -hmm. And now in 75, he's taking over as chairman and CEO because the handlers have been ousted from the company. He's not a toy guy, though obviously he's been with Mattel for a while. There are toy guys below him. I mean, Ray Wagner is kind of the main head of toys at the company at this point. Arthur Spear gets rid of the bad acquisitions, but he still wants the company to be diversified. He does not see the company as a toy company either. Mm -hmm. Uh, He gets them into the publishing business. He buys a publisher, for instance, and it's still about being diversified, but he's trying to diversify in smarter ways. Obviously, for a company that's trying to diversify like Mattel is, this newly booming electronic games industry seems like a pretty neat idea, especially since Coleco, another toy company, has already had some success in this, which shows that you don't necessarily need to have your own in-house fancy chip designers or fancy game designers in order to be able to put out a product in this new market.
0: As long as you have a good presentation, a good sales pitch, good branding good games to bring to market however you do that it doesn't matter you don't have to develop it in-house you can take it from other stuff and that's exactly what a conglomerate wants to do especially if they can take hey i know this chip maker over here who can do this really cheaply because this is quote-unquote in-house And I know we got this designer over here to make this game to put on that chip. And then we got this guy who can make controllers. and This guy is good at marketing. And this guy can make a good presentation box to put it all in.
2: Sure, Mattel at this point has a pretty decent R&D focus. They actually have a guy who is in charge of new initiatives, you know, strategic guy in charge of new initiatives, which is this Ed Krakauer, Mm -hmm. who I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Under Ed Krakauer, there was a new marketing director for new initiatives named Michael Katz. Hmm. And Mike Katz is a person that is probably not quite as well remembered today, but was actually a very important figure in the video game industry for a decade and a half. Between 1976 here, where we're talking about now, and 1991, he worked for Mattel, Coleco, Atari Corporation, which is the Jack Trammell version, and Sega during that time period. And then he basically, he didn't retire after Sega, but he became a corporate headhunter. So he was no longer
1: in running. the business.
2: Yeah, no longer in the business. But this was the very beginning of his time in kind of this industry. And he had been at McCann Erickson. He'd been at Lever Brothers. He'd done a lot of advertising of like, Dr. and Gamble products and other kind of you know consumer household goods kind of products. And so Katz came on board at this time to be the new product category marketing director. Hmm. And it was basically his job to bring Mattel's toy business, the toy division, into either new entertainment areas or areas where Mattel had been in in the past but had not done very well. So at this time in 1976, he noticed... The popularity of calculators.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, little handheld uh, calculators, which were all the rage in the early 1970s. We were so astoundingly primitive that <laughs> we still thought that pocket calculators were a neat idea.
0: Right before those digital watches.
2: Literally right before those digital watches, actually, because calculators kind of boomed in 70, 71, 72, or 68 to 72, somewhere around there. And then digital watches really boomed in kind of 70, 74, 75. New technology, man. But, uh, you know, the pocket calculator had become quite a thing. At this time, the pocket calculators were not LCD displays. At this time, the pocket calculators were LED displays, light-emitting diode displays.
0: They emit their own light. Because normally when you think of a calculator, you don't think of them actually having much of a backlight. It's like, oh, it's black and white. I can't see what's going on, because it's usually an LCD. Right,
2: exactly, exactly.
0: The, the fact that it's actually lit up is kind of neat. and why they don't do that more often now.
2: Well, LCDs have a lot of advantages. Well, back then, LCDs had a lot of advantages over LEDs. Now, of course, LEDs are taking over everything again. You know, I mean, televisions yeah. these days are all LED or your traffic lights are, are all LED.
0: But of course, your, flash, your uh, light bulbs in your house.
1: Mm hmm.
2: The progression of the technology, the LCD was more flexible and more versatile than the early LEDs, because, of course, for the longest time—I forget which one is it—is it blue, the last one they discovered?
0: Yeah, yeah. blue is, was really, really hard.
2: Yeah, for the longest time, you obviously red was first, and then they got green figured out, but it was a long, long time before they could do blue, and so you couldn't do a full color LED display until very recently, because we didn't have blue.
0: <laughs> yeah, and blue— I think like for a while they were wondering whether and it would even be possible to do a viable blue.
2: That's correct. That's exactly correct. So yeah, you had you had these LED displays, red LED displays. And you know, people loved just playing with these calculators because they were so new. It's not that they had games on them. You know, like Far your from it, I would yeah, imagine. because these are not programmable like your TI calculator, Texas Instruments calculators like the ti T I eighty-two that started showing up in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I mean It was just kind of neat to just type and fool around with them because the technology was so new and and amazing.
0: And the fact that it glowed in the dark or it effectively backlit and Mm -hmm. you could do whatever. You can do all those uh, fun things you like to do as a kid with uh, math, like uh, 58008.
1: Right,
2: exactly. Michael Katz noticed this and was like, The prices on this have really come down because there was a very vicious calculator price war in kind of 72 to 74 when Texas Instruments, which had been producing calculator chips but had not been making their own calculators, decided that they would actually get into the calculator business themselves, not just provide the chips to other companies. And so that instigated a massive price war that ruined all the calculator companies, but it also brought down the price of this LED technology a whole lot. And so Michael Katz was thinking there has got to be a way that we can take these LEDs and do something fun with them. Mike Katz is the one that is generally given credit for coming up with the idea of doing an electronic handheld game. Hmm. Now, these are not video games in any way that we would think of them today. And, you know... They're more
0: like the Tiger Electronic sort of thing.
2: Right, except except even more primitive because those tiger games of course are LCD games mm-hmm. which means that they have actual graphics as shoddy as they might be sometimes at this point of course an LED can't really create a graphic because we're just talking about lines mm-hmm. on a screen pretty much mm-hmm. uh and you know we were talking about Mattel and video games earlier but Mattel Electronics actually has its origins in these handheld games and so Michael Katz got an R&D guy at Mattel named Richard Chang to kind of do a mock-up of maybe what they could do with LEDs in terms of making a game. He came up with a concept Chang did of essentially obstacle avoidance, because that's mostly all you can do with just very primitive LEDs, is you have your LED Mm -hmm. and you have other LEDs coming across—I mean, it's not a screen, obviously, but coming across the play area— Mm -hmm. And if those LEDs collide with your LED, then something bad happens. I mean, that's basically all you can do with the technology is have two lines intersect each other.
0: You could do like a racing game or maybe a shooting gallery.
2: A racing game. And that's exactly the two concepts they came up with were a racing game and a football game. Those a were the f- first two concepts they came up with, where you're like the running back, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're avoiding the defenders. Obviously, it's a very abstract representation of football. Right. And, and those are the first two concepts they came up with. They got uh, Rockwell International, which was a chip maker, to make them a little four-bit, I think it was four-bit, little four-bit chip to uh, kind of power this thing. And they kind of tested the two concepts, and they discovered that football tested better. Hmm. But that the driving game was much simpler because with the driving game, I mean, you just keep track of laps and make sure you don't collide. The football game, while it is very abstract, you do kind of have to implement some of the rules of football. You have to keep track of yards. You have to keep track of score. You have to keep track of the clock. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a little more complex. There's more
0: electronics involved.
2: Exactly. So even though football was the one that tested the best, they did the auto race game first. Uh, in, in late 76. Then they came out with football after that. Football became a massive seller. It was selling, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of units. They, they sold millions of units over all of that.
0: Wow, it's kind of amazing to think of that glowing football in your hand.
2: Yeah, except, you know, it's not even a football in your hand. It's like the line is the football and the player all in one glorious line. But, you know, it did allow you, it did running plays, it did allow you to punt on a fourth down or whatever, and it, it tracked downs, it tracked scores, so it did a little bit of stuff. But, I mean, we're talking about astoundingly primitive, but nobody... It's the 70s. Yeah, I mean, nobody had seen anything like it. And, you know, unlike the the video games, these were much cheaper. I mean, the video games were like $80, $70, 80 $90 products, these dedicated Pong systems.
0: And that's 70s dollars.
2: Right, Exactly. Uh, You know, something like this you could do for like 30 bucks. So, I mean, this is a much cheaper game because, I mean, LEDs, I mean, obviously today LEDs are really cheap. Even back then, LEDs weren't that bad, especially since the calculator wars had really driven down the price. And the processor in there is a very simple little processor that's driving the
0: Right, as thing. you said, a 4-bit processor.
2: Yeah. So they got that out and it did really well. And that was the beginning of Mattel's electronics business. Now, there was not a Mattel Electronics yet. Mm -hmm. because Mattel Electronics actually becomes a separate subsidiary of Mattel, eventually.
0: It gets spun off, but this is sort of the proof-of-concept germination stage.
2: Right. And so they've got these going, and then, as I said, they see Coleco do well in the video games. For them, the next logical step is to get involved in the whole video game thing as well. And so they start exploring this in 1977. Now, just to kind of check ourselves on where the video game industry is in 1977. Mm-hmm. Dedicated consoles are selling like hotcakes, but this is the last year they're going to sell like hotcakes. In 1978, that whole dedicated market collapses, as we discussed in our Console Cycles episode. Right. Fairchild has released the first cartridge-based system at this point, the Channel F, which has its limitations. hmm And Atari, at the CES that June, announces the video computer system. And then they release it late in the year. So the first cartridge systems are coming in. The dedicated market's preparing to fall apart. And this is where Mattel is trying to figure out how we can exploit this area. We actually are fortunate. We're both fortunate and unfortunate. The main driving force within Mattel behind the in television on the technical side was a guy named Dave Chandler. Mm-hmm. And the unfortunate thing is he did pass away several years ago, oh. and he was never really, to my knowledge, interviewed about his video game contributions before he died. On the plus side, after he died, or maybe even before he died, I don't know if he put them up or his family put them up, he had kept a lot of documents from his time at Mattel. And he actually, he or his family, I'm not clear on whether he put them up before he died or if it was put up in memoriam. I think his family might have put them up after he died, Hmm. actually scanned a bunch of these documents and made them available freely on the web.
0: Oh, wow. That's amazing.
2: So it's mostly things like parts lists and price lists and all of that, the nuts and bolts kind of manufacturing stuff. There's not a lot of insight into marketing or sales or product development. But it still provides us a very interesting window into what Mattel was thinking in regards to getting involved in the video game industry. So he put together a memo in 1982 that was essentially a history of Mattel's involvement in the video game industry to that point. So we do have some insights into what their thought process was when they were putting the system together. So in 1977, They figured that it was not worth their time to be involved in this video game industry unless they could really differentiate themselves in a couple of ways. One is that they wanted it to have, like, real graphics. I mean, real graphics in 1977 is obviously not the same thing as real graphics in 2016. True. But they wanted to have decent representations of play fields and people and objects and whatnot. They didn't want this abstract ball and paddle kind of thing. We don't
0: want to have dots and dashes representing things. We want something that you look at it, you can be, yeah, that's kind of a ball. Yeah, that's kind of a person. Yeah, that's kind of a car
2: exactly and the, and they wanted it to be full color which many of the dedicated systems were but not all of them they wanted something that provided what they considered to be more long lasting play value that's that's their words uh, in the in their document provide long lasting gameplay values hmm. i i'm sure that they were able to see even as they were putting this together in 77 that the whole dedicated market couldn't last very much longer in its current state because while there were a couple of attempts to make more complex things, it was mostly just variations on ball and paddle or target shooting. Only if they sp-
0: wanted to go to something more advanced, the entire industry needs to innovate.
2: Right. And so they really wanted to get something that was far more impressive than anything that was currently on the market or that was even soon going to be on the market, like the Atari VCS, which was coming before the end of the year. Dave Chandler was the guy that was put in charge of bringing this together. Now, they have in-house design talent. I mean, certainly Richard Chang is is still there, for instance, and Mm -hmm. Dave Chandler knows some stuff. But they're not electronics people. They can't just really go out and design a chip. You see, Atari was really weird like that. Atari was really the only one of these early companies that came up with a very high quality microchip all of their own to put in their systems. Because when they did their home Pong, they had a guy named Harold Lee that they had specifically brought in because they wanted a chip designer to design some custom stuff to make their arcade games harder to pirate. Mm -hmm. And then they harnessed that ability of his to actually design the Pong chip. And then when they were doing the VCS, of course, they got the CPU, the most complicated well, maybe not, I don't know if it's the most complicated, but the, the central part of the system they got from Moss Technology, they got from another company, but then they brought in a chip designer to do their graphics chip themselves. That was J-Minor. Most companies can't do that, which is why you had General Instrument, which was a company that just said, hey, look, we've got this shiny chip that plays the game. We will sell this to you in bulk for cheap, and then all you have to do is put it in a nice package, like we said, and, and put it out there. Right. And that was the key to most of these companies getting into the video game industry, because they didn't have the in-house expertise in order to do that themselves. And Mattel was no different in that case. So Mattel was looking to see what was out there from the semiconductor manufacturers. The company that they thought sure that they were going to go with was National Semiconductor. Hmm. Very reputable company. They were kind of one of the first spinoffs of Fairchild, which was one of the first major semiconductors in in what became Silicon Valley. We talked a little bit about them in the context of Chuck E. Cheese. may recall that Gene Landrum, who was the guy that put Chuck E. Cheese together, had come from the Consumer Products Division of National Semiconductor. National Semiconductor was... Very early in calculators, and they were also very early in dedicated video games, getting in at about the same time Atari did. They were trying to move forward with their video game business, and they had put together a chipset that would be suitable for something like this. So they had, they had a very attractive set, a uh, chipset available for $46, according to the documents that we have. Mm-hmm. And that was a little more expensive than what Mattel wanted, but at least it was a starting point. And they were able to get them to come down in price a bit, a slightly more limited chipset for a little less money, talk them down to a $33 chipset. Hmm. And they were all set to go with National in the fall of 1977. And it was right at that moment that the game manufacturers were starting to realize that the dedicated market was not going to develop as they had hoped in 77 and was just going to be a bloodbath in 1978. And so what had been scheduled to be a meeting to get a handshake deal to go with this project together ended up being a meeting where national said, you do not want to get involved in this industry. Run away. Free and terror. That's right. And so they scuttled the deal.
0: Oh.
2: They called it off. Everyone called it off. They decided that they were not going to proceed with video games. By this time, handhelds are becoming very profitable. Kind of handhelds really peak in the kind of 77 to 80 time frame is when Mm -hmm. they do their best. And so the handhelds are doing well. The video game market looks like it's going to be a challenge. So they shut the whole thing down. In the meantime, they had been negotiating with other companies besides National. They had also been negotiating with General Instrument. Mm -hmm. And this is the company, as we said, that created the Pong on a Chip. And they They have some
0: experience there.
2: Right. And they had been diversifying. In 77, they released a whole range of dedicated game chips that play different games like Tank and whatnot in addition to just the basic ball and paddle stuff. And they also had a chipset that was meant for a programmable system. Hmm. Initially, they didn't want to go with them because it didn't include video RAM. So even though it was a lot cheaper than Nationals, it didn't have everything they were looking for. But GI had gone back to the drawing board, and they had kind of redone some things and got something acceptable put together that was... A little more expensive than their original pitch, but still competitive with what National would have been offering. GI gave a report from their side uh, about their chipset and about where they saw the market going that got Mattel's brass, Ray Wagner in charge of the toy division and whatnot, got their brass excited about doing this again. And so two months after the project had been completely shut down, the project was reinstated and it was based around this GI chipset. It's kind of interesting. It was a 16-bit chip that GI had, Wow! which at this time, all of the video game systems are 8-bit systems.
0: Or less. But
2: the bus was only 10. The bus was only 10 wide. So huh. it was a 16-bit chip, but it was effectively only a 10-bit system because of the bus. Wow. S- similar to how the original IBM PC used a 16-bit chip, but they actually opted to use the 8-bit bus, which meant that yeah. it didn't really have the full function of a 16-bit computer, because of course, the bus is essentially that super highway. Whenever the CPU has to communicate with any peripheral device within your larger system, all of that information... Travels up and down the bus, and so even if you can do if your CPU can do calculations, uh, you know, with sixteen bits, if it can only communicate with everything else through eight bits, it's uh, it's basically like taking a a six-lane highway and suddenly turning it into a three-lane highway. And
0: well, I I think I got a better (laughs) analogy there. Um, if you're on the ever on the east coast and you go through toll booth, you've got a four-lane highway going up to where toll booths are. And then it spreads out to amongst 10 or whatever toll booth. Yeah, it can accept a lot more, but everything feeding that is so much smaller. You're still limited by the throughput. And then on the other side, it goes from 10 back down to four lanes. And that effectively, the toll booth is your processor and the four lane highway is your bus.
2: Exactly. So this still made it a. More capable system certainly than anything that Fairchild and Atari had put out at this point, but not as capable as that chip would indicate, just if you're if you're going on the bits of the chip itself. Pure numbers. Exactly. They had the system based around this uh CP sixteen ten CPU, the sixteen ten number obviously coming from sixteen-bit processor, ten-bit uh bus. Then it had a video chip, which was derived from kind of their Pong on a chip kind of stuff that they had been doing. And the good thing about their system was that it did have sprites.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. At that time they actually had sprite-based systems.
2: Yes, there were 8 moving objects that could be 8 wide by 8 high. Now the Atari VCS had sprites too. What they called player missile graphics, but the thing about the sprites on that are is that they were really very specific. There was a ball sprite and there were two paddle sprites. It was essentially, you know, allowing you to have a couple of tanks shooting mm-hmm. at each other or a couple of paddles uh knocking a ball back and forth. So these sprites were not all very adjustable, like the ball sprite you couldn't do too much with in terms of changing its size or configuration. It was, it was a ball, and people did very interesting, unique things with it by taking advantage of that, where it's refreshing, drawing the image, you know, every 60 seconds there's, mm-hmm. no, uh, there's no frame buffer, so it's drawing them directly on the screen, and so you can configure that so stuff on different lines stays while it's redrawing the screen, so that You can make that ball, for instance, look like a snake by stringing a bunch of them together, because Mm -hmm. since it's appearing on different lines, even though it's one sprite, the hardware is tricked into thinking that it's in multiple places at once because it hasn't redrawn the whole screen yet. So there was some stuff they could do. But the thing about this is they have eight sprites versus the five in that Atari system. And all of these sprites are adjustable.
0: And you said eight by eight, which is actually pretty surprising that a lot of... Memory to dedicate just to sprites. You got eight, eight by eight sprites, which is pretty amazing for the time because you can do a lot with eight, eight by eight sprites.
2: You absolutely can. So, this is a far more sophisticated system than the VCS is. The other thing is that being a couple of years further down the line, it also has more RAM than that Atari VCS system because. As uh, you'll recall, that had, you know, 128 bytes, which is not much. Now, the, the Intellivision still doesn't have huge amounts, but it does have two 256-byte RAM chips. Hmm. So that's a total of, what, 512 bytes, right. I guess, which is way more than the 128 in the uh, VCS.
0: Way, way more. And if they have two banks of it, it, conceivably you could go at a lower rate for if you wanted to use it as memory and just pre-draw things and then have it switch back and forth.
2: And the other thing that they did that was very clever that saved them some memory and, and space on the games is that they actually had a built-in 4K program on a ROM chip in the system called the Executive or the Exec for short, which contained most of the routines for doing the very basic stuff that your program would call on the system to do such as moving the objects around those sprites mm-hmm. it has the routines for creating the sound and the music for accessing the video chip and all of that it was basically a primitive operating system it was basically it sounds like, yeah it. it was basically you know the the APIs you know between your program and the metal to tell it how to do these routines.
0: That's amazing.
2: Unheard of in a video game system at that time, or even past that time for a goodly while.
0: you got effectively a hardware-based operating system, primitive, but an operating system that just, it gives you an access. I can just write my code. I don't have to figure out the strange math of moving sprites around and stuff. I just say, hey, sprite one. It looks like this. Okay, great. That's saved off. I want to move sprite up, move sprite up, move sprite down, move sprite down. I just call that. I don't have to design the, how do I tell the computer or the game console to move a sprite up? That means I have to take the sprite, somehow move it in the video area up one square, two squares, whatever it is. It's pretty cool.
2: Exactly. So, I mean, this is a very advanced system for the time, and it really shows in terms of the games. If you put an Atari game and an Intellivision game side-by-side, written in about the same era, using the same cartridge ROM size, Uh, you know. so if you're comparing a 4K game to a 4K game or something like that, I mean, it's a night and day difference. And in fact, as we'll get to in a bit, Mattel uses that fact very much to their advantage as the system comes online. Oh, yeah. So a lot of this really cool stuff, like the exec, is actually done not by Mattel or by General Instrument, but is done by the third important member of this partnership that brings the Intellivision into existence. And that's a consulting company called APH, Mm -hmm. run by a guy named Glenn Hightower. They're a company, obviously, that specializes in this electronic stuff. They'd worked with Mattel before on some of their electronic handhelds. So they already had a working relationship, and APH was the company that created the operating system and all the initial games for the Intellivision, so the the launch titles, all came out of this APH company because Mattel does not have that expertise in-house. Right. They actually do at this point have some guys in-house that are doing the handhelds, and in fact, a couple of those guys will later move on and start doing video games, but for now, they're just doing the handhelds. So. APH does both the initial games and the operating system, and the great thing about that is, is that the guy doing that exec, a fellow named David Rolf, is actually creating the very first Intellivision game, which was a baseball game, at the same time he's writing the operating system. So it's literally tailored to be useful to the game designer designing games, because the guy that's doing it isn't just off in a separate lab somewhere hypothesizing, well, maybe game designers would like this, well, maybe game designers would like that. Exactly. He is creating both at the
0: same time. Which is great. And, I mean, you can see cases of this even in the modern era where you have people who are designing systems and the way you interact with them, and they're not talking to game developers. You can see that with, I believe it was the PlayStation 3. Mm-hmm. Really capable system. Had a lot of really cool stuff and design stuff, but no one actually talked to any game developers to go, here's how you use this framework we made. Here's our thought process as to why. It's just sort of like, yeah, here's your system. Here's a manual. Have fun, kids. Exactly. So,
2: And that's a disaster. And so here, even though the hardware is coming from General Instrument, The kind of merging together of all that hardware and the creation of the initial software is all going on in the same place at APH. And so it all really goes together really well because of that. So by the end of 1977, this project has been reinstated and they're starting to work on it. The goal is to have something available for 1978. Okay. And in fact, they do debut the system behind closed doors at the June CES that year. Hmm. The problem is, though, that the chipset is just not going to be ready. They are going to have to push the system back to 1979. This is actually one of the great misconceptions about Mattel. There aren't a huge number of misconceptions about Mattel, mostly because I don't think there's really been all that much written in depth about Mattel uh, as compared to, say, Atari, which has so much written about it. But one thing that has kind of made its way into all of the histories So far is that in 1978, Mattel became scared about competing with Atari and discontinued the project. And then after Jeff Rockless, who became the founding president of Mattel Electronics, after Jeff Rockless lobbied the board, they reinstated the project for release in 1979. This is quite simply not true, and we've got this from internal and external sources. Uh, I was at the Library of Congress earlier this year, and I went through a bunch of old trade publications of the consumer electronics industry, and in all of those, Mattel was announcing that they were delaying the system to 1979 because the chips weren't ready to go for
1: 1978.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, of course, that Could just be saving face, you know, a a lie that they're telling to the public. But we've got it from two internal sources, too, because we've got Chandler's documents here that make it pretty clear that they were having delays on the chipset. And Mm -hmm. I also interviewed a fellow named Malcolm Kuhn. Malcolm Kuhn had been the original sales director for Atari's consumer division when they were launching all of their dedicated systems in the VCS. Mm -hmm. He was actually fired in early 1978 due to some circumstances that were really outside of his control around the launch of the VCS in 1977, basically kept manufacturing them too close to Christmas, and mm-hmm. so they ended up with a bunch of systems that they couldn't sell on to retailers. Remember, at this time, video games are still very much a seasonal product, so basically then he... Just like all toys. Right. So he was basically told in early 1978, it's like, you've got to sell the rest of these systems that we have sitting around, and he was basically like, we can't. They're not going to want him right now, and, and they were basically like, "Well, then we'll find someone who will," <laughs> and they fired him. Uh, and so he was hired by Mattel then to sell the Intellivision, but then he ended up leaving the company before the end of '78 because he was frustrated because he had nothing to sell hmm. because it got delayed. And again, right. he he told me the same thing. He said it was it was the chipset. So what must have happened? First of all, the source for this is a guy named Keith Robinson. Keith Robinson is the main person preserving television history today. Uh, very important and highly respected member of, of that community who was a member of the Intellivision game development staff. But
0: he wasn't there yet in the late 70s. He came in later on in the company's life cycle and was trying to preserve this stuff after the fact.
2: Exactly. And so this is obviously a conflation... ...of those two different events. The 1977 situation, where they did temporarily halt the project because they didn't think they should be in the market. Mm -hmm. And the 1978 situation, where they had problems with the chipset, and so they had to delay because they had problems with the chipset. So that got confused, jumbled, misremembered by whoever Keith talked to. And so it got transformed into, in 1978, Mattel decided they didn't want to compete with Atari, and so shut the project down. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's another one of your, your video game misconceptions that, that we hope to get corrected with some of this material here.
0: Right. It happens, especially in, as we went over the last episode. There's so much of this stuff where it's so amazing how stuff gets conflated, confused, and it's like the game of telephone.
2: Exactly. So by 1979, I'm not sure if it was founded in 79 or or 78. I think it was founded in 78. Yeah, it was already around by 78 because Malcolm Kuhn was hired to work for Mattel Electronics. So by 1978, you have all of this electronic stuff that's been spun out into Mattel Electronics. And Mm -hmm. that's not just the video games, that's also the handhelds. The head of this division is a guy named Jeff Rockless. He's the president. And then the general manager is Ed Krakauer, the guy we talked about before, who was in charge of these kind of strategic new initiatives for the company, is now taking on the general manager's role in Mattel Electronics. So they're shepherding this thing along as it goes through its delays in 78. Then in 79, they're finally able to get it out. They do a limited test market in 79. They just launch it in Fresno, California. Why Hmm. Fresno? I don't know. But that's where they chose for their test market. So they did a very small test market. It went well, and so they did a general release in 1980. They immediately run into problems.
0: Oh.
2: In one of the other episodes, I believe I talked about my hypothesis that Atari, one of the reasons that they didn't do a timely upgrade to the VCS leading up to the crash, was that they were more and more fixated on the home computer and that they believed that the video game was a passing fad that was just a means to the end of getting them into the computer business.
0: Right, it was going to
2: evolve into that. Right. In the case of Atari, that is just a hypothesis of mine. In the case of Mattel, we have these internal documents that Dave Chandler or Dave Chandler's family posted. And so we know that in 1979 here, when they launched the Intellivision, Mm that they were really not interested long-term in video games. They wanted this to be their entree into computers. Hmm. And the Intellivision was set up to be expandable. There was going to be a keyboard attachment peripheral that was going to be sold separately at a later date that would basically transform Intellivision into a computer. And they were looking into doing modems, they were looking into doing Teletext stuff, They were looking into all of this peripheral stuff as well.
0: So you sort of buy a little game console and then build a computer around it.
2: Right. They wanted to be in the computer business. They were not really interested in the video game business, except as a means to an end.
0: That's something they could conceivably do, because you have a 16-bit processor. If you could figure out some way to increase that bus size up to 16 through some sort of expansion that would be good. And then you can do a lot with that. As a core system, you bring in keyboard, storage, better video, whatever, something, if you can make it properly expandable, it would work.
2: Right. Turns out, though, that you couldn't do it for a decent price point. The The keyboard peripheral became its whole nightmare within Mattel. It even led to an FTC investigation, and they started getting fined for not releasing it for false advertising because they had promised it they had explicitly mm-hmm. promised it that you would have this expansion that would allow you to turn it into a full computer in the end they did release a keyboard because they basically had to to get the ftc off their backs i think they released it in 82 somewhere around there but it was not the originally envisioned peripheral it did not represent a significant expansion that really turned it into a computer at that point so that didn't work out but that's what they were thinking in 79 and so all of their advertising was focused around the Intellivision as the future of computing in your home. Hmm. People didn't really care. They didn't want that. Yeah. I mean, people were starting to buy computers. I mean, Radio Shack was having good success with computers. It's one thing to buy a computer from Radio Shack, a company that is known for its electronic products. It's a whole nother thing to buy a computer from Mattel
0: barbie's computer
2: yeah the barbie company so nobody was interested in buying a computer at mattel and then at the same time this is going on you have the handhelds getting into trouble because the handheld market is starting to become oversaturated and starting to collapse and mattel basically misses a product development cycle they don't get anything new and exciting out for 1980 in mm. handhelds mattel electronics is in really bad shape and a shake up occurs I, I don't know all the details. I don't know if it's coincidental that these people were leaving then or if they were fired or what, because I—unfortunately, there aren't as many good sources on the inside of of Mattel Electronics as there are on some of these others. And Jeffrey Rockless now has actually passed away, so there's no speaking to him. I would love to speak to Ed Krakauer, but I don't know where he is now other than that I'm pretty sure he's still alive. Jeff Rockless leaves. He he leaves to start another company. Ed Krakauer leaves to go back to consulting, and a fellow named Josh Denham comes in to run Mattel Electronics. He's a Mattel lifer. He's been with the company forever and ever, but not with electronics stuff. Uh, he was like in charge of the preschool line, for instance. Hmm. I mean, he doesn't really have experience in this kind of thing, but he's the new president of Mattel Electronics. But one of the last things Ed Krakauer does before he leaves is he brings in a friend that he knew from other jobs named Frank Mm O'Connell. Frank O'Connell is actually someone I have talked to, and he's kind of one of the unsung heroes of what went on with Mattel Electronics and with the Intellivision, because he brought a complete new level of discipline and a complete new focus to the company. He's not running the company, Josh Denham is, but he's the one that really drives the positioning of the product from this point forward. The first thing he does when he gets in, he's very market research focused. And so he goes out and he discovers what it is that customers want from Intellivision or what customers think of Intellivision. Mm -hmm. And he finds out two things. First of all, everyone agrees that it has far better graphics than Atari because that's just obvious. I mean, that's a no-brainer, but it's good to see that the public recognizes that fact.
1: Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Second thing is, they have no interest in, in television as a computer, none whatsoever.
0: They like it as a game console because it's from a game, comp- a game creating a, yeah, a doll toy company. Toy company. Mm-hmm. But as far as the c- computers go,
2: meh. So O'Connell refocuses the marketing entirely. This is going to be marketed as a game system. We are going to make games on this thing, mm-hmm. which seems kind of obvious. And in hindsight, you would assume that that's where they were going all along. But they, they really weren't, because we've got, the, we've got the internal documentation and whatnot to show that. He wanted to really aggressively go out and make a statement about how this system was better than mm-hmm. Atari's system. He decides to do a head-to-head advertising campaign. Nice Head-to-head campaigns are still pretty rare at this point. Coleco actually had run one for their handhelds. They had uh, Electronic Quarterback, which was their competitor to Mattel's handheld football game, Mm -hmm. and they did a head-to-head kind of commercial for that. But it was not very common in the toy industry. You didn't really do that. Frank O'Connell came out of marketing in the food industry, not the restaurant business, but like groceries. That is an industry that has always been about comparing your product to the other guy's product. Mm -hmm. So this is his experience, and the fact that he's somebody coming from this different industry kind of becomes an important thing because he brings a different perspective to how they can position the product. And so he decides they're going to go head-to-head. They're going to show Atari games side-by-side with Intellivision games, so you can see the difference. One of the big ads they did is they both had a baseball game. Mm -hmm. So they did an ad where they showed both baseball games side-by-side, and you just— can tell that one, uh, from a graphical standpoint, is just vastly superior to the other. And he decided that they needed a spokesman to do this too, and he chose George Plimpton. Mm-hmm. George Plimpton was an intellectual. He had written some books that were kind of well-known, and he was kind of this very stereotypical East Coast, oi polloi kind of guy. So he had an image as being a very sophisticated They're individual. Like ben Stein. Well, yeah, I or guess... Or that, kind of, kind, of, I, so, that I, kind of
0: personality where you just have this person that's sort of iconic.
2: Sure, sure,
0: yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, it's a little bit different, but yeah, I- exactly. Yeah, I know
0: like the, the actual personality might be different and stuff. But...
2: No, no, I see what you're saying, and, and that, that works. That does work. Because I'll go with that. Okay. And so he decided he wanted George Plimpton, and it turned out... This is interesting. I mean, George Plimpton was not a young man then. Um, You know, he was middle aged. Turned out George Plimpton liked video games. Really? He was actually a game player. Most, well, there you go. Most of the time, when you have one of these spokesmen, uh, you know, they don't know anything. I mean, William Shatner was the spokesman for Commodore Computers uh, for a while in between Star Trek and, and the renewal of his popularity with TJ Hooker and then with the uh, Star Trek movies in the 80s mm-hmm. when he was kind of cheap, <laughs> you know easy to get. And I mean, he didn't know the first thing about computers. Yeah. He never used them. I mean, they, they showed him one and he kind of tentatively, you know, touch type something out. I mean, he didn't know what he was doing with computers. George Plimpton was actually a game player, which surprised me. Frank O'Connell told me this. I would have never, I would have never pictured that. Mm -hmm. So, He actually got a hold of Plimpton directly and met him at his country club, and they made the deal that night. He brought over a trunkload of games with him, and they played games all night, and they made the deal that night. I mean, they had to finalize it through his agent or whatever, but no agent, no lawyers, just two guys being like, I'd like you to market our video game, and the other guy being like, I like video games. Let's do this. (laughs) And so George Plimpton became the Mattel spokesman, and he was a very effective spokesman because he just, he had that air of sophistication i mean i'm sure the younger set doesn't really know who george plimpton is today but he really had that air of sophistication and erudition about him mm-hmm. so when you have george plimpton telling you clearly this one is va superior to this one you know kind of kind of like those almost like those great poupon commercials you know pardon me sir me you know, do you have any great poupon you know it's the same kind of idea it's like this is highbrow you know Mm -hmm. And so the commercials, they did print ad, they did television ads. They were very effective. They were so effective that Atari got mad at them. They tried to sue them over these ads because they didn't like this. I mean, I think their claim, they tried to claim that because they were showing screenshots of Atari games that that was Atari intellectual property and they can't do that. That was their way in. But basically, (laughs) they were scared to death of these ads (laughs) because they were actually quite effective. Now, Mattel never challenged Atari for leadership in the video game industry. They never had more than maybe 15% of the market.
0: Which is kind of surprising, considering how much better, at least from a graphical standpoint, the Intellivision was. How was it from the sound standpoint?
2: Sound standpoint, I'm not sure, but uh, it, it certainly did sound. But here's the key, and it's, it's good you brought that up. It brings us to our next point. Atari had the hot arcade licenses.
0: Ah. Mattel
2: did not. So Mattel was very strong in sports games, and they kind of went towards, towards an older set that was more interested in that, and they licensed all of their sports games. They were the first guys to go out and get an MLB license, an NBA license, an NFL license, a PGA, pro, uh, uh, not PGA, but the, the bowling league, all of, the, all of these different licenses for these institutions. They were not licensing celebrities. That mm. came later. If they had a baseball game, it was MLB baseball. If they had a football game,
0: it was NFL football. Well, it kind of reminds me of uh, the 90s with the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis. The Genesis is where you had all your sports games, Mm -hmm. and the Nintendo, you had all the sort of like hardcore gamer games. Yeah, sure. And I, I would think that would be analogous to
1: this.
2: Absolutely. So they were very strong on the sports games, and they had a lot of brand recognition on the sports games. But Atari, they shipped their system with combat, which mm-hmm. was tank and yeah. variants on tank, including some with airplanes. But you know, it I was tank, the the same thing. a game that sold you know, a good uh, 10, 15,000 units in the arcade. Very well-known thing. television, shipped with a poker and blackjack game.
0: Ooh.
2: I mean, okay, fine. I'm
0: going to have lots of fun <laughs> with my friends playing that there, uh, Poker and Black Jackie.
2: Right, so it didn't have those kind of arcade hits, and Atari could leverage its own library to start, and then Atari was the company that first realized, hey, wait a minute, these other companies that have arcade games, we can license their games too, and we can port them. Mm-hmm. So in 1980, Atari gets Space Invaders. Yeah. And that's it. Atari is running the market from then on. I mean, obviously, when all those third parties come in, as we talked about in the cla- in the crash episodes, that starts eroding the market share of, that Atari has in hardware and software combined. But right. nobody challenges Atari in hardware again. Coleco yeah, but, might have, but uh, then the crash mm-hmm. happened.
0: Right, but I mean, from, once they have Space Invaders, they they got it from eighty to eighty three.
2: Exactly. And then Asteroids is a big hit, and that's Mm -hmm. an Atari game. So they've got that one in-house. Breakout's a big hit, that's an Atari game. They've got that in-house. Defender is a big hit, they license that from Williams. All the big arcade hits are on the Atari system.
0: And we've said before that with the arcade, the arcade and the home console were very much married at this point in the video game industry, because you wanted to save your quarters to really show off to your friends and whoever at the arcade having the capability to practice and hone your skills at home is fantastic. That has a really big draw to the teenage mind.
2: Right. Plus, of course, uh, the younger kids that want to do the same things that their big brothers and big sisters are doing. But Mom doesn't let them go to the arcade because that's where all the teenagers hang out, and that's not appropriate. They could get bullied or whatnot there. So, you know, the younger kids aren't allowed in the arcade, but they want to play the same cool games that their elder siblings and cousins or whatnot are playing. And so then they play those games in the home. So, I mean, there's a real synergy, even though the home games at this point obviously look and play almost nothing yeah. <laughs> like the uh, their arcade counterparts just because the VCS is so primitive, the fact that they have it. That's right. That's the important thing. And Mattel doesn't have that. They finally get one game that, that does very well, that kind of becomes their killer app, called Astro Smash, which is basically a combination of Space Invaders and Asteroids. Like, hmm. like Space Invaders, you've got a gun battery at the bottom of the screen that only moves left and right. Yeah. Like asteroids, you have rocks that break into smaller rocks as you shoot them, but obviously they're all falling from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screen. Your it's not your ship is not moving freely through the asteroid field like in asteroids. So it's basically a combination of those two games, and it even has a variable difficulty. If too many, if you're missing too many rocks, they start coming slower. <laughs> hmm. Uh, That was produced by a guy named John Soule in 1981, because at this point, Mattel finally has its own internal game development group. Okay. They use APH for all those original games, but then at the tail end of 80, beginning of 1981, they start hiring their own people. They transfer two guys from the handheld business, Mike Minkoff and Rick Levine. Mm Mm-hmm. They hire John Soule, who I talked about, and Don Daglow, who is now an absolutely legendary figure in the video game industry. This is where he got his start in it professionally, though he had been making games on mainframe computers in the 1970s when he was in college, so he was not a stranger to game development. And they hired a guy named Gabriel Baum, who was working for Thorn EMI in Europe, to be the manager of this group. This group game, the name Blue Sky Rangers, they were named that by TV Guide in a, a marketing piece that TV Guide did, because Mattel was keeping their identities a secret because they didn't want them to be poached by rival companies. So <laughs> they wouldn't allow them to release their names, so TV Guide called them the Blue Sky Rangers. And those five were the original Blue Sky Rangers. They hired more programmers as time went on. And so John soul was one of these guys that was hired and brought in in-house, and he created that game. It's interesting, they were much more market research focused than Atari was in their early days. Now, Atari became more and more marketing heavy as time went on. This is Frank O'Connell again. Frank O'Connell really wanted to make sure that they understood who their market was Mm -hmm. and how they could best target that market. VCS, early VCS game development was basically, sometimes a game concept would be assigned to the programmer, sometimes it would be a port, sometimes the game designer would have some leeway to come up with something on their own. But it was basically, go away for six to nine months, make a game, and when it's done, show it to us, and and we'll go from there. That was early VCS game development. Mattel, they implemented a system where they were checking that product every step of the way. Frank O'Connell actually went to IBM and worked with IBM to come up with some standards for how to evaluate a product, how to set milestones for a product. I believe, I haven't done the research to be certain, I believe Mattel must have been just about the first video game company to use the concept of milestones, which is a very common thing in computer software. Right. But uh, I think they were probably just about the first ones to have this idea of, let's get the game to X state, Mm -hmm. then let's evaluate the game at that point, see where it is, where it's going, whether we should continue, whether we should change direction, whether it's okay, and then move forward to the next milestone
1: mm-hmm
2: i i don't no one was doing that at that point i don't think atari certainly wasn't doing it at that point
0: and they're a the market leader so mm-hmm.
2: so that's that's uh kind of a legacy that they had they were very market research focused which can be a good thing can be a bad thing depending on how you use it they definitely had a more disciplined approach to game development and they definitely created some interesting games like astro smash but they just They never had the licenses. They did some licensing later on, but they never got the huge licenses. I mean, Atari was just, I mean, it became a $2 billion company and it was a subsidiary of Warner, which was a very powerful media conglomerate. You know, they had the money to go out and bid on all the top licenses. And because they had an arcade division, they were really in tune with the arcade. They knew what was hot in the arcade. They had contacts with the arcade companies through their own arcade division. So they... Atari just had all the advantages when it came to, right. doing that kind of thing, so Mattel they were never good had, enough.: Yeah. So Mattel had some interesting games, and they had some games that did well, and the system on the whole sold about three million units, which is not terrible. But, you know, they were never going to threaten to be the, the market leader. Actually, Frank O'Connell realized this, and Frank O'Connell wasn't even sure that Mattel should stay in the hardware business. He figured that their expertise, they're a toy company, they're a design company, their expertise is really creating gameplay experiences, not building hardware. So why should we be in hardware? And he never was able to convince anyone before he left. He left very soon after. Uh, He was only there a little over a year before he left to found his own company. He never convinced them to get out of hardware entirely, but he did convince them once the whole third-party software thing with Activision started, Mm -hmm. he did convince the company to start creating games for the Atari VCS. Wow. So they created a label that they called the M Network, and they found a guy that had legally reverse-engineered the VCS, had done a clean room Mm -hmm. reverse-engineering of the VCS, and got his technical specifications and used that to start putting their games on the uh, Atari system as well. That was going on. Frank O'Connell very much believed that video games needed to evolve in a very team-oriented direction. He was one of the very first people to really want to bring together designers, artists, musicians, programmers, Instead of your programmer and your designer being one and the same and doing all the art and everything, he was one of the first ones that wanted to do team-based development,
0: almost like a proto-electronic arts. Mm-hmm.
2: And and he didn't implement this at Mattel, really. Mm-hmm. But when he went off to found his own company, which he did in 1982, that then became 20th Century Fox Video Game Division because then they bought into him. That's kind of what he set out to do, and that's tangential to what we're saying here. But it's just the point that you know Mattel was moving in one direction under Frank O'Connell, and then when Frank O'Connell left, it started moving back in another direction, and that is really where they got into some of the trouble because they not only decided after O'Connell left that they wanted to be in hardware, but they resurrected this idea of getting into computers because, Mm -hmm. as we discussed in our Crash episodes, you had the computers coming down from the the high end and the game consoles coming up from the low end, and it looked like they might merge into this low-cost home computer Kind of market, and so that's when Mattel fell into the trap of doing this Aquarius computer mm. system, which they bought from a company called Radiofin or Radofin. I mean, in Hong Kong, you know, again, they don't have the in-house expertise to build something like this. Right. They just...
0: have the sub license,
2: right? And uh, you know, Aquarius released in eighty-two or eighty-three or whatever. And you know, it's uh, developers like to joke that you know the. Computer of the 1970s today. I mean, it was the wrong approach. And they updated the Intellivision too. They did uh, an Intellivision 2 console, but it wasn't a whole new system. It was really a pretty darn minor update. It had a cheaper cost, and it had some kind of higher quality controllers on it, but it wasn't really that different a system. So they were working on a more advanced system when the crash finally hit and the plug was finally co- pulled. But again, they didn't understand product cycles. They didn't have something ready to replace the Intellivision when they needed to have something ready to replace the Intellivision. Most likely in part because they were getting seduced by the home computer. I'm still convinced yeah. that all of these game companies, Atari, Mattel, and Coleco, were all completely seduced by the home computer market and really dropped the ball on nurturing their video game business as a result. But I don't have absolute proof of that. It is just a hypothesis.
0: And one that I agree with from everything you and I have talked about over the past few years. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's Mattel Electronics in a nutshell. I mean, we kind of talked about the fall of the company. They lost a boatload of money in 1983, just like everyone else. They went mm-hmm. through several rounds of layoffs, and Mattel itself almost went under until Michael Milken, the junk bond king, saved them. television, actually continued to live a longer life. Mm-hmm. A VP at the company, Terrence Valesky, I think he was the VP of marketing. I think he probably replaced Frank O'Connell when Frank O'Connell left. Terrence Valesky bought the Intellivision, the rights to Intellivision, from Mattel, set up his own company called INTV Corp, mm-hmm. and uh, he kept selling the Intellivision until in, about 1990 or so. Uh, a few new games were created in the latter period there. Really? Never did big business, obviously. That's it, probably why we never saw it. No, I never saw it. I never was aware of this when I was a kid then. It didn't do great business, but, you know, when the video game business did revive under Nintendo in the late 80s, the NES was a very expensive system, and so, you know, Atari was still selling the VCS. Uh, They had redesigned it into a model called the 2600 Junior, which was basically slimmed down and and cheaper and all of that, Mm -hmm. and they advertised themselves as the product for people that couldn't afford a big, fancy Nintendo system, and then the Intellivision, I think, may have been even cheaper than that. So, I mean, it was just kind of, it hung on as the real, real poor man's alternative to these hot new video games that are coming out, because it had a large software catalog, because Mm -hmm. it had all of the stuff that was made before. It was cheap, and it never had more than 2% of the market, and most of the time didn't even have that much. I mean, it was really not doing anything, but it, just like the Atari VCS, it did survive in its own way <laughs> into <laughs> into the next decade.
0: Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. It's it always fascinates me when you have technology that is technically more advanced and it doesn't dethrone the competing hardware out there, like VHS and Betamax in mm-hmm. television and the VCS.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It seems like the thing that is just good enough and And get that critical market saturation, that thing that's easy enough to produce, easy enough for people to understand, Mm -hmm. wins out over what is technically far superior to the other offering.
2: And and you really see that over and over again in video game history. Uh, Certainly the Sega Master System was a more advanced system than the Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm -hmm. Uh, It had more RAM, better graphics.
0: But you don't even think of it as no. even existing
2: no in europe they do uh we should say for our british listeners that the master system actually had quite a bit of success there and in brazil uh it's actually still sold the man really? they have never stopped selling the master system in brazil wow but yeah for for i mean jeff and i of course are americans so from an american point of view uh right. like ours I, you don't when even we think of kid, the master
0: system when we heard sega we didn't Think of Sega until the Genesis and the Super Nintendo.
2: I had one friend who had a master system. It's the only master system I ever personally, like, observed in the wild. And he also had an NES. I mean, they had everything. This, this kid actually had a Genesis in, like, 1989 or early 1990. I mean, like, right when it came out, when nobody was buying Genesis. Mm-hmm. He had a Rob. I mean, it was, it was just sitting in a closet. I never saw his Rob in action. But the point is, they had, they had all the video game stuff. And we played that Master System once. Mm-hmm. Once. I mean, whenever we were over there, it was to play the NES. We were playing Skater Dime, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, Mega Man, Bases Loaded. That was kind of what we did over at his house. We played that Master System once. And that's the only time I ever saw a Sega Master System out in the wild.
0: Yeah. It doesn't have the software catalog.
2: Yep. Well, right, exactly. And NES came first. NES cornered the market and Sega couldn't get uh, any hot titles because of all those exclusivity agreements, and so that one didn't work. Uh, You know, Genesis and Super Nintendo, that one's a little more complicated. I would say overall the Super Nintendo was a more advanced system, much better sound, more colors, all that Mode 7 stuff that was fun. The Genesis did have a faster processor because it used a Motorola 68000, whereas the... Super NES used a MOS technology chip uh, that was really hamstrung because they were originally trying to maintain backwards compatibility with the NES, which they didn't end up doing. I would say that the processor speed thing is negligible, so I would personally call the Super Nintendo the more
0: advanced system.
2: system. But for a couple of years, not for the entire life, but for a couple of years, the Genesis outsold it in the US, and uh, for more than a couple of years in the United Kingdom, because again, just the marketing behind it was very sharp. You know, the PlayStation 3, which you brought up earlier. I mean, the PlayStation 3 was uh, certainly by far the most advanced system of that generation. And of course, the Xbox 360 was no slouch itself. And what wins the generation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that little old white box that doesn't even do HD graphics. Yep. <laughs> so it's it's a common story in the video game industry. That
0: yeah, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing, just how it plays out and how it keeps playing out.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's very much a matter of, of the marketing alongside the product development, which is, again, kind of going back to, to my project, the whole they create worlds things. The they is those programmers and hardware engineers that are making this really cool stuff, and then the companies that are selling that stuff. Because you can have the greatest, most advanced, most wonderful thing in the world, and if you don't sell it right,
0: if no one knows, mm-hmm. it, it's not going to happen.
2: And so, you know, you have to pay attention to that side of it, too. And Intellivision was in no way a failure. Uh, three million systems was no slouch. I mean, that compares to like twelve or <laughs> 12 or 15 million VCSs. So, I mean, they were buried, uh, but it made money. I mean, three yeah. million units, it made money. If Frank O'Connell hadn't come in, the marketing guy, it might not have even done that well because he refocused their message and he built the internal development and he built the processes. I mean, he didn't personally build the processes for internal development, but he, he brought – well, he didn't bring in because he's not the hirer, but Gabe, Gabriel Baum was brought in and Don Daglow was eventually promoted to be essentially co-head of development. They had two teams. Baum oversee, oversaw mm-hmm. one set and Daglow oversaw the other set. You know, it was kind of that discipline that they put together for themselves that really resonated. And Mattel has a legacy in terms of the people, because Don Daglow went on to become one of the very first producers at Electronic Arts. Mm-hmm. And so he was there when they were developing their whole Artists as rock stars, uh, Milestones, Advances Against Royalties, yada, yada, yada system played a role in that, and a lot of the games that he produced were created by former Mattel programmers that he brought in
0: <laughs> uh, to work as artists for Electronic Arts. So it's almost like Mattel Electronics evolved into Electronic Arts? Or? No, not
2: not even close, because there were a lot of—I mean, he was just one of several early producers. Okay. And Trip Hawkins, you know, he evolved—he came out of Apple and everything. But I, I'm just saying, you know, there's there's some of that legacy there, because Don Daglow— certainly must have taken some of what he learned from working at Mattel and applied it to his situation working at electronic arts. One of the sales guys at Mattel, Emil Heidkamp, went on to be the head of Konami America's consumer division mm-hmm. when they launched their NES and early super NES product. So there's another guy that went on. Al Nilsson was a marketing director. He was one of the guys, in fact, Frank O'Connell singled him out as one of the guys that was very important in shaping kind of the market research and market approach that the company took Mm -hmm. under him. He was one of the guys that helped him define a lot of that. And then Al Nilsson went on to be the uh, product marketer for Genesis. And so he was one of the guys that was really pushing that marketing that helped give the Genesis that edge in North America for a year or so. Even though Mattel got out, the Mattel legacy did live on in a lot of the people that were there that did go on to have very successful and oftentimes very influential careers in the video game industry.
0: It's pretty neat. Sort of like it's almost a germination that then released spores that spread across the entire industry and influenced a lot of areas.
2: That's very true. And, you know, obviously not just Mattel, but also Atari as well, even though that we talked so much about how that entire industry crashed, and we talked about how Nintendo brought it back, one thing that we probably could have mentioned but didn't is that when it was brought back, it was a lot of those people that were involved in that first generation of games that did go on to define how the market developed when Nintendo brought that console market back. So even though Mattel and Atari collapsed in, in the crash, their legacies did very much live
0: on. The people survived, even though the companies died. Exactly. Well, I think that pretty much handles the hat. Where are we going to go next time in our next episode?
2: Well, I thought we might go back to the very beginning.
0: Uh, well, we were not far enough <laughs> back with this one.
2: <laughs> we were close to the beginning, 1977. But, of course, the beginning of the console market would be 1972 when Magnavox released their Odyssey system. And I've already blogged about this on my blog. So for someone who read that, I'm not sure how much of this would be new. But obviously, the Magnavox Odyssey is the starting point for not just the home console market, but for the entire concept of video games. Because even though it was released after Computer Space and after the Galaxy game, which we covered on a previous podcast, it was in development before those systems. And it was really the moment that the video game was defined. And so it seems like it would be a good topic for our podcast.
0: Sounds good to me. And we will see you next time and the year to come on They Create World. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, Email us at tcwpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.